Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everybody. We are your hosts, David O. And Carly R. And today we are joined by our special guest, Heather. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys? Doing well. Doing well. Um, Where are you from, Heather? Um, I'm from Indianapolis, originally. And um, I met my husband when I was living out in Annapolis, Annapolis, Maryland. He was in the Navy. And... um, with the Navy, we've lived all over the country. So um, he was in the Navy for 30 years. He did Department of Defense for four. And then we uh, retired back to Indiana, but we live in the southern part of the state in a log cabin in the middle of the woods. That's <laughs> oh, a, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah. So when were you first introduced to recovery? Um, I was first introduced to recovery when my mom went into the hospital back in 19, probably would have been 1988 or 89, and she had pancreatitis and she almost died. And uh, the doc, I vividly remember the doctor coming out to talk to us. I was probably 19 at that point. And he said, if your mother doesn't stop drinking, she's going to die. Mm. And I was like, I didn't under, I could not understand what he was talking about because I, in my mind, my mom didn't have a drinking problem. Mm. So I couldn't figure out why he was saying that. Um, but my mom obviously knew and she started going to AA mm-hmm. like almost immediately. And my mom got sober and she still is. She'll have 33 years um, in September. That's awesome. And um, at that point I was, I was briefly living with her. I've, I've been on my own since I was 17. I'm 52 now. Um, so, and I kind of raised myself between, you know, the type of family I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so when she got sober, I was still drinking and using drugs and running the streets. And she, um, nicely asked me to leave (laughs) the house again and said that I was affecting her sobriety and I had to had to find other accommodations, which I did. Um, but she went on a year long campaign to try and convince me that AA was the answer to all my problems. Hmm. And I just thought she was out of her mind. You yeah. know, I thought she was nuts. Um, and it really turned me off because she, she became like a preacher for AA. Mm-hmm. But she she was planting seeds, unbeknownst to me, and I was somehow subconsciously, you know, absorbing that message. And there did come a day where I really did have a moment of clarity where I thought, you know, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. And I did reach out to her and I said, you know, how do I, what do I have to do? And, um she sent me the, the name and number of a young lady there. And, um, I was living in Maryland at this point. She sent me a <clears throat> name and number of a young lady who lived, um, not far from me. And she was around, she was about 20, 21, 22, about my age. Mm-hmm. And she'd been sober about a year and she came and picked me up and took me to a meeting. Nice. And how long have you been and, clean? Uh, it'll 31 years in June. It'll be 32. God willing. That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, with all that out of the way, uh, Take it back over and uh, share your story with us. Well, um, you know, I got I got sober at a really young age, and um, at the time that was kind of unusual. There was a group of it's mm-hmm. not now not nowadays. There's a lot of young people that are in treatment, um, 
but back then there was a small handful of us um, in in the rooms of AA that were. I knew a girl that was 17, and then there were, you know, some people that were in their early 20s, and we all got sober together. And oddly enough, we're all still sober today, which is kind of amazing. When yeah. You, you know, when you know the statistics about recovery, it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Um. But I got sober because um, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I was a binge drinker. I was a blackout drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did very risky and dangerous things when I was drinking. Um, I have God knows what I did when I was blacked out. Mm-hmm. There were times when I would start on a Thursday night and come to on a Saturday, and I'd be 200 miles from, from home and have no idea how I got there. That's, um, that's not a short distance. 200 miles, is a, <laughs> that's a long way. Well, in Maryland, you can go from Annapolis to the Eastern Shore, yeah, and that's about, and that was a typical drive for a lot of us to go to the beach. But mm-hmm. to not know how you got that far or who you were with when you woke up, that was, you know, that was pretty scary. Yeah, um, I'd been exposed to alcohol my whole life. You know, mm-hmm. my mom is not is an alcoholic, <laughs> and um, my dad. I don't I don't know, but my parents divorced at four, and every mm-hmm. single party at my dad's house which there were a lot of them um involved very heavy drinking and so you know people say when did you start and i say well i was in diapers the first time i had a paps blue ribbon beer Wow! (laughs) because i have pictures you know i have pictures of my younger brother and i in diapers behind the bar you know drinking my dad's beer um that my parents you know thought i guess thought was cute at the time Mm -hmm. um and so alcohol was just it was just such a part of our life you mm-hmm. know and the dysfunction that comes along with that was just it just was how life was i did not know there was anything other than that mm-hmm. um i never knew other people didn't live the way that we lived um we lived with my mom we moved once a year whether we needed to or not um because my mom just was always running, you know, for that geographical cure. Mm-hmm. There was no stability. There was no, you know, there was nothing that you would want to give to a child that would help them grow up into a healthy, functional adult. Mm-hmm. My mom did love us. Um, my dad did love us, um, but there was a lot of a lot of neglect that went on, and within that neglect, for a young girl, you can imagine the things that might happen oh, yeah. um, to someone. And so by the time I was 21, I was I was really, you know, pounding away, really in an effort to self-medicate for depression and um, probably PTSD. But I had, I mean, we didn't talk about that back then. You mm-hmm. know, we that was not terminology back in 1989 and 90 that people were talking about. No one was open about recovery. I mean, yeah. we were still hiding, you know, hiding in our rooms who we were on the outside. Um so, you know, I didn't know that's what I had been doing, but, you know, for my whole life, I had used one substance or another, whether it was food or sugar, or I would mm-hmm. read compulsively, anything I could do to escape reality. And as I got older, that became alcohol and drugs. Um, and so I was, I was done, you know, that last time I woke up that far from home, you know, I was on the Eastern shore of Maryland and I was in a, what looked like a, a trap house of some sort. Yeah, and it terrified bad. me. <clears throat> and uh, 
that's when I reached out to my mom and said, you know, what do I have to do? And it took 10 more days for me to, you know, really ponder, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is this what I want to do? And then um, on June 23rd of 1990, I went into an AA meeting. That was a Monday night. Um, It was a 12-step meeting, which eventually became my home group. And um, I sat down and I listened, and I just never stopped going. Mm-hmm. And from that day to this, I've, I have not had a drink or a drug. Um, and fortunately for me, I got you know, a very good sponsor who attached herself to me. Um, her name was Boston Jan, and Jan had been sober for a, a long time at that point. And mm-hmm. she was probably the same age as my mom, but she, she ran a hard program. Like there was none of this fluff of you can go to one meeting a week or two, you know, whatever (laughs) works for you, you know, sobriety is whatever you call it, you know, there's a pass for every, you know, she didn't believe in any of that crap. I mean, she was like 90 meetings, 90 days, you better be bleeding or you, or that's your only excuse. Yeah. (laughs) You, you call me every day. Um, you cut your old friends, your old places, mm-hmm. um, no excuses. And yep. she immediately started working with me on the steps. And she was very, very strict. And I really had never had anybody in my life that was strict like that. You know, my I was raised by my mom, and my mom was very, she raised us to be independent. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Sorry, I have dogs. No, that's have fine. To. We we have dogs around here too, yeah. so we get it. <laughs> so she really was. I mean, she was the one that really saved me, really, from myself because mm-hmm. she. So let me shut this door. Um, <laughs> because she just made sure that I stayed on the path that, um, in her mind, AA had laid out for us to get sober. Mm-hmm. And it, and it worked, you know, that saying you hear in the rooms, if you, if you're, any of you are 12 steppers, it works if you work it. Yep. And people throw that around nowadays, like it works if you work it, you know, like it's a joke, but <laughs> it really, <laughs> if you work the program of AA, even if you don't like the spirituality part of it, let's say you're an atheist, well, AA was built to appeal to atheists. It's built so that spirituality can be whatever it is to you. But if you really work and examine yourself and make a list and you know, make amends where possible. And, you know, you really follow the things that that's laid out in the big book for me. Anyway, I'm talking for myself. Yeah. Um, you know, if I sat in those meetings, I went to a meeting every single day for 11 years. Wow. Except for the days that my, you know, I do have children. So there were times when I was in the hospital, you know, giving birth. Um, recovery things like that but for 11 years every single day and some days I went twice a day and the reason was because my head was so screwed up yeah you know I was not a normal person I was not healthy um you know she would always say Heather your best thinking got you here Mm -hmm. think about that you you your head your brain your thought processes your decision making ability that's what got you to AA so you got to repro- reprogram yourself. Yeah. And and the only way you can do that is by listening to people that have more time than you that can help you along the way. 
mm-hmm. because on your own, you're a disaster. Yeah. And she was right. I mean, I had a very hard time listening. <laughs> um, I was very hard-headed. I was very stubborn. Um, I kind of fought her along the way for the first four years. Mm-hmm. And then I made a drastic decision that radically changed my um, life for the for the negative in a lot of ways. <clears throat> and it was at that point that I said, you know what? I, I really don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might be sober. I might be, you know, but that's the only thing I know how to do right. Yeah. The rest of this stuff, I have no idea. And that really at four years was when I said, okay, I, I have to find out what's really going on with me. I have to find out why I do the things I do. I have to, you know, I've got to get it together. You yeah. know, at that point I had, um, I had a son, um, my son, Chuck, he was, a, you know, he was an infant and mm-hmm. we were in a very dangerous, precarious position um, because of it, because of a decision I had made um, in a marriage relationship. And it was at that point that I thought, I'm, I'm going to screw this kid up mm. just like my parents yeah. screwed me up. If I don't, if I don't get my shit together. Yeah. And that's when I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I, I went on a journey of healing and uh, therapy and self-discovery and, you know, it's still going on to this day. You know, it's sobriety has not been a joy ride for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been through a lot of things in my, my time sober. You know, I've been through the death of my younger brother that just about, I mean, that was devastating. He died of cancer. Um, I was seven years sober when that happened. Um, I went through um, homelessness at four years with my son. We went into a domestic violence shelter. That was devastating. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I met and married my husband in Annapolis, thank God, when I was, um, I met him at seven years. He has, uh, he had three years at the time I have to it's a long time ago mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he has he has 20 28 years now I think wow. um, so you know but we had a blended family um, that was difficult we were in the Navy we moved every three years that was difficult you know my ex-husband showed up at some point and that was really difficult and yeah. it, that was very traumatic for the whole family mm-hmm. you know and I've, I've stayed sober through all of that um, and, but it's not been, staying sober hasn't been hard for me. I don't want to sound, you know, Pollyanna-ish about it. Um, mm-hmm. but living through life, real life in all of its struggles and pains and trauma, living through that without, without drugs and alcohol, without doing stuff to make it better. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Living through it in in reality, wide awake, with your real feelings, that's what's hard. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what's hard. And I think that's, you know, and that's why having a really, really good, strong, solid, concrete foundation in some kind of program, you know, at this point in this day and age, whatever that program is to you, Mm -hmm. but having some kind of a program, having support from other sober people. Having somebody that's older than you, that's been sober longer than you, that can help you along the way, because I hear I work in I work in recovery in two different fashions, 
and I sit and I go into treatment centers and I listen to young, you know, younger people that are getting out of treatment and they're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But and it's like, yeah. you know, without that strong, solid foundation with somebody to help you and guide you along the way and somebody to talk to when you're in a, a sticky place or you feel like, you know, I'm, I just can't take this anymore without having that. It's hard. Yeah, life is hard, and if if I didn't have all that, I don't know if I could have stayed sober mm. through all of the things I've stayed sober through. And you know, so my what I always say is, you can stay sober through anything. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's just whether or not you have the support system and the foundation and uh, the determination to do so. Mm-hmm. There were lots of times that I wanted to drink. There were lots of times that I wanted to smoke. <sighs> lots of times, but I knew it wouldn't help anything. You know, I knew it would make things much worse than they already were. Um, I knew it wouldn't fix anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it would give me temporary relief from my emotions, but that's all it would do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my my real story is, is just how to get through real life without using. And, um, you know, we went through a 10-year struggle with my son. He's 27 now, and he had um, undiagnosed mental illness and drug addiction. He was homeless. Um, mm-hmm. It was a terrible, terrible time in, in our lives. And he's been clean now for two years. Um, but that just about killed me, you know, yeah. going through that as a mom, watching my son, um, just self-destruct like that. Um, but I didn't, I didn't use, but I, I about did myself in. I won't be, I won't lie. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's propelled me in different directions. You know, that trauma, that terrible nightmare, that's what sent me in the direction I'm in now, which is, you know, I'm a family peer recovery coach mm-hmm. and I help families impacted by addiction. Um, because I know, I know what it feels like now to watch a loved one, you know, suffer. And I never, I never knew what that felt like before. And I do now, fortunately or unfortunately. And, um, you know, the, the families out there, there's so many families out there that are struggling, that are hurting, that are desperate, that are hopeless. Oh yeah. They don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's given me an opportunity to take my experience, strength and hope in that area and help. Mm. Um, and then on the other side of it, I work for a company um, helping people coming out of treatment with aftercare options. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, for years and years, I didn't want to work in the recovery field because my sponsor said, don't, um, I won't use her language, but she basically don't crap where you eat <laughs> um, was what she always said. Yeah. Um but I've, you know, gotten to a point now where, um, you know, my, my, my young, my daughter, the one who has um, said to you had autism, um, mm-hmm. she's 22 now and all the other kids, there's four of them. They're all adults. So I don't live at home and, um, I have time on my hands and there's just, there's so much work that needs to be done. Yeah. And there's so many people that are suffering and, um, if if I can give back in some way, if I can help in some way, then I, you know, I really feel honored to do that. Mm. My son's situation really, um, it created a deep, deep compassion in my heart. Mm-hmm. 
for people that were that were addicted it created that in my heart for the homeless population Mm. um and i thought i was compassionate prior to watching my son go through this but i i really wasn't you know i could Mm. talk a good game about the opioid epidemic and people that were overdosing and dying and how terrible it was and you know all of this stuff but when it happened to us you know it broke my heart and I think that was a good thing. Mm. Um, I think my heart needed to be broken because I I now know what that feels like and um and I and and I want to help those people because <gasps> those people were those people were my son at one point. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's not my total I guess my why I drank and how I got sober story but um I think there's a lot of those stories yeah. out there. There are, you know, so many people that can tell a good um, sobriety, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Um, mm. You hear them all the time. Yeah. So um, this is just where I'm at today and still still in the trenches and still, you know, recovering from things myself. I, I don't think the journey really ever ends. Yeah. All right. Well, we definitely have some questions for you. Um Carly, would you like me to go first? Yes, I would. Oh, perfect. That's great. Um, so um, you said you got clean at a young age, and there were like a couple people uh, sort of around your age. And um, it's very difficult for young people to really compare in to the rooms. Mm-hmm. So what really helped you at that young age compare in when you're you're dealing with people who are a lot older than you and not necessarily in the same life situation? So how, how did you really buy in and stick and stay? Well, my sponsor told me right from the get-go, she said, don't listen to their stories. Okay. Don't listen to what happened to them. Listen to their feelings. Mm-hmm. Listen to how they felt. Listen to the emotions as they went through things. Those are what you have in common. Mm -hmm. She said when someone, someone can be at at the time, someone can be 55 and they can say, I never felt like I fit in. I've always felt lonely. Mm -hmm. I've always felt, you know, unloved, unwanted. Mm -hmm. And she would say, it doesn't matter what the story was behind that. It matters what the feeling was. And that's what you can, that's what you can relate to. Mm -hmm. And that's what I always listened for, you know, and, that's what gave me buy-in initially, that and desperation, honestly. I mean, yeah. the, the buy-in initially was desperation and what my sponsor was telling me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did not want that old life anymore. Um, I didn't know how to not have it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this woman was telling me she could help me. Mm-hmm. And nobody had really helped me before. You know, I, I love my parents, but my parents were really hands off is a nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. And this woman was about my mom's age and she said, I will wrap my arms around you. I'm going to be very strict, but I will help you. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd never had that before. Yeah. And I wanted it. I wanted what she had. I wanted what the other people in the rooms had. I saw people that were in their 30s that were married with kids. Mm-hmm. I wanted that. Yeah. I didn't think I'd ever get it. You know, I didn't think I was capable of having that kind of a nice life, but I wanted it. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't 
for me, that's just where I was coming from. And I think a lot of the, the people I got sober with that were in that age range. I think that was a lot of a lot of what, you know, was the motivator is I want what you have. Yeah. And I want the life you have eventually at someday. I want the life that you have now. And, you know, I got sober in Annapolis, Maryland. There's a huge recovery community there. There's mm-hmm. five meetings a night, you know, 15 on Saturday and Sunday. There's meetings everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a very well-connected group of people. They socialize together, all of, all of that kind of thing. So it was a sense of belonging. You know, it was for the first time I had friends that actually cared about me. Um, that just didn't want something from me. Um, some of the guys did, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's guys. That's guys um, everywhere. But you know what I mean. I for the first time I had a group that I belonged to, and they didn't think I was weird. You know, they were all like me, and I was like, I had no idea there were other people like me that thought yeah. the way I did and did things like I did. I mean, it was it was amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Well, what you got, Carly? Um, um, so a lot in recovery, we talk about like the powerlessness, um, Mm -hmm. and we're definitely powerless over others and their using. So how did you navigate helping your son? Um, well, I initially I went to Al-Anon, which is a great program and I'm still a member of that today. Um, and that helped me a lot. Um, it helped me a lot, but there wasn't really a lot that I had learned in the 12 steps over the years that was helping me know how to help my son. Mm -hmm. And so I had to find other avenues of how do you reach somebody? How do you talk to somebody? How do you communicate with somebody? You know, what, what are, I had no healthy boundaries at all. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you talk about enabling and, I don't know that it's necessarily enabling. It's just you're you're so desperate to help because you don't know what else to do, yeah. and you're trying anything and everything. Um, you know, I had so we we didn't have boundaries with him, and um, we didn't we were trying to allow for natural consequences of his actions, and it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I I got involved in um, learning about craft, which is a technique for family members to uh, change the conversation with their family members and eventually I took a uh, certification course in family peer recovery coaching and I learned that I'm powerless over the substances Mm -hmm. but I was not powerless over how I behaved with my son I was not powerless Mm -hmm. over how I talked to him Mm -hmm. I was not powerless over how we handled um boundaries and um natural consequences those were things i had control Mm -hmm. over and those were things i could change and those were things i did change and you know i had not learned those things in the rooms because in the rooms you learn you can't control it you can't cure it you didn't cause it you know you just wait and hope and sit on your hands and pray and you know hope they hit bottom and and, you know, that just wasn't working for me as mom mm-hmm. at, at all. I was like, you're telling me I got to sit and wait and hope that I don't get a call from a police officer that he's dead? Ooh. No, I'm not doing that. And so um, I learned um, how to do motivational interviewing with him, uh-huh. for instance. Um, just different things. And we changed completely the way we were interacting with our son. 
with 360, the way my husband and I were interacting with him. And um, thank God it worked. Yeah. And it gave me some measure of feeling like I did have some, there were Mm -hmm. things I could do. Mm -hmm. I wasn't completely powerless in this situation. But um, I did have to. I did have to turn all of it over to to God, you know. Ultimately, because you know I'm not Him. All right. Um, do do do. Uh, what question am I going to go with? Uh, so you talked about um, like dealing with your um, mental health because mm-hmm. that was really like a root cause of like uh, using an addiction. So how have you addressed that mental health in recovery? Like what, what have you had to do to get where you are today? Um, I've been in, in and out of therapy mm-hmm. off and on over the years. Um, I've had a lot of good therapists. Um, I have been involved in group therapy where I've been with other women that have been through things that are similar to myself where led by a facilitator who could help us process, you know, things that have happened to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I work very closely with my physician um, regarding medication mm-hmm. um, because I I do need medication to manage my mental health. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, had a, my sponsor told me early on, I can help you with the 12 steps and, and I can do all of that, but I cannot, I'm not a therapist. Yeah. And so she sent me to someone that she knew that was a um, therapist that was in Al-Anon. So she would speak, you know, she spoke the lingo and would understand mm-hmm. a lot of what I was going through. And I think I was about a year sober at that point. And that therapist um, said to me, you know, you have some very, very deep-seated trauma. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're going to be able to address it. Um, without you going to the doctor and asking for medication mm. um, because it I you know it threw me into a horrible depression and she was you know worried that that could trigger a relapse and yeah. so um, off and on over the years I've worked with people and I am currently in um, trauma therapy um, I've since about two years ago uh, right right before my son got clean or went into treatment I started EDMR therapy. I don't know if you all know what that is, but mm-hmm. um, and that's that's been incredibly healing. Um, it's probably the best type of therapy I've ever done for myself, and it's really helped me deal with some things that I could not have dealt with before now. Mm-hmm. So I'm still at it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Carly. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> A little bit raspy this morning. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um, How have you stayed connected in recovery throughout the pandemic? Mm. Through the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Really just over the phone, over text, um, over, honestly, over Instagram. Yep. (laughs) You know, sending sending things to friends and family. Um, I have a Zoom account, um, a lot of phone conversations. I'm, you know, I'm... I'm actually a, a, an introvert, but I play an extrovert on TV. So, you know, the, pan- <laughs> the pandemic hasn't really been, uh, you know, it wasn't too bad to be isolated in our homes. My husband is an extreme inter- introvert, and so is my daughter. So nice. none of us were too upset uh-huh. about not being able to leave. Yeah, Eric, um, Eric was in his dream world. He was like, yes, yeah. I get to stay home. 
Yeah, that was my daughter. She was like, I have an excuse yeah. not to ever leave again. Um, she was thrilled about it. Um, but yeah, just like my Al-Anon meeting, we went to Zoom meetings. So we were meeting every week um, on the computer. Um, same thing with some AA meetings. I, I joined um, the web that website, intherooms.com. I don't know if you guys know about that one or not. But that that had a lot of online meetings. Um, and of course, I live with someone in recovery. Um, my mom's in recovery. My son now is in recovery. Um, you know, so there were a lot of, lots and lots of phone calls and, um, you know, various messaging through social mm-hmm. media. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a couple questions. So the first one's going to be a fun one. So you spent a good amount of time on the East Coast and you spent a good amount of time in the in the Midwest. Midwest. I, I know my brain was like, Bleh. um, what are some like funny or weird differences between the East Coast and the Midwest? Well, and I also we also did uh, ten years in San Diego too. Okay. Ooh, all right. So and we- Connecticut, and um, gosh, you've been everywhere. Those are the main ones. Um, Virginia. We lived. I should say that we lived ten years in Virginia too. Um, so we kind of we've lived kind of on we've lived on both coasts in different locations, and then we retired here to the Midwest. Okay. Um, Compare all three: so- East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest. East Coast. So are you talking about as far as like recovery stuff or people or just in people? General. Just yeah, just in general. What's some weird things, but like that are different. On the East Coast, people are, um, they can be standoffish. Okay, and that's a nice um, way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> and a, and you know a little bit hard to get to know. Um, yep. There can be you know kind of that wall up that you get with people. Um, in San Diego. I found my experience was people were very nice mm-hmm. when we got there. Yes. I mean, I was shocked. So I remember being in the grocery store the first day we were there, and I was uh, about three months pregnant, and I was showing, and there was a man in front of me and a lady behind me in, in line, and um, I was exhausted. We'd been on the road for like 10 days on a cross-country, and uh, I said something about being tired, and all the cashier and both the people in front and back said, oh, do you need help to your car? Do you want us to help you get your stuff to the car? And I was like, what do you Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> what do you, what do you want? Yeah. yeah, I was like, what's your angle? <laughs> are you plotting on me? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you, right. what's up? Yeah. And I was shocked at how just like open and friendly they were. And I found, I personally found that to be the case um, with a lot of people in San Diego. Now, yeah. my husband worked up in L.A., um, I had it, my sister and brother and all lived up in Orange County, which is outside of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and just kind of an open, sunny disposition. Now, the closer you get to the wealthier areas, yeah. that changes. Yes, I, yeah, I you get imagine. you know that changes a lot. Um, Virginia, boy, we did <laughs> ten years in California, and then ten years in Southern Virginia. And it was like the twilight zone. Oh, yes. My kids, by this point, my son was, uh, he was going into eighth grade, and my daughter was going into third. And my son, you know, eighth grade is like that. You're you're cool. You know, you got your friends. You know, you're starting to, you know, really think about getting a girl. And he was like, where the hell have you moved us to? Yep. 
like yeah that's, a, that's a rude awakening yeah people so rude yeah so rude yeah um very my son's biracial he's from my first marriage he's biracial very racist there uh-huh. um race i found racism against myself because i'm white and i had a, a mixed child he found racism because wow. he wasn't black enough i mean Oof. it was it was very challenging to live there mm-hmm. for him um which did not help his his issues that he already had mm-hmm. um we eventually uh, were stationed in a little town where the people were very nice and very friendly, but still kind of cold. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. And, and very, now I, I'm, you know, disclosure alert. I am a Christian. I'm a born again Christian. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not, denom- I'm not affiliated with any denomination. And mm-hmm. I, I like to think I'm not a weirdo, um, <laughs> but they're in Virginia, very religious. Yes. Like, yeah, that's legally legalistically religious yeah, in that's Virginia. A, that's to a the little, point where it's side like, of the Bible Belt. Yep. Oh yeah, it's like holy kind of weird. Hmm? I yeah. said holy rollers. Yeah. Yeah, and just a lot of um, yeah. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> all right. And yeah. then we moved to Indiana, Southern Indiana. The people are incredibly friendly here. They're incredibly nice. I've only ever driven uh, through Indiana. I've never actually like stopped there. Maybe for gas. Well, you should drive through the southern part of the state because um, the southern part of the state is beautiful. The mid, the mid part of the state and, and stuff. That's all like flat and corn mm. and flat yeah. and yeah. more corn. And, <laughs> that but if you get down the into the perfectly. southern, if you get into the southern part of the state where we live, it's mountainous. There's some great. Uh, mm-hmm parks for hiking and things like that we live near a little town called nashville indiana it's beautiful um so yeah it's really pretty here and the people are incredibly friendly and nice and um but you do i mean i'm from here originally so i can say this um you do get some uh people with rebel flags and yeah um things of that nature so it's it's not as friendly to people of color mm-hmm. i'll say that's a nice way of saying it Oof. so yeah. but other than that you know it's been a, it's been a good move for us and we you know we're happy here so nice All right. the recovery community here is not that uh, built up it's, mm-hmm. i mean there's not a lot mm-hmm. where we live um i i guess in indianapolis it probably is but not where we live well, everybody who's listening, you just got a nice tour of America, so you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carly. I'm I can tell you about Connecticut too. Those people are, are. I live. We lived in Connecticut, and those people are very. Um, oh, everybody in the north we, northeast is shady. Yeah. From Maryland on up, we're we're we're, yeah. we're just shady. We're weird. I don't know. It's just. The well, way I are. worked for I, when I was in Annapolis, Maryland. I worked for I, I worked basically down in D.C. for an insurance company mm-hmm. as a sales rep, and my territory was New York. And I was like, "Oh God, you're going to make me work with those people." <laughs> <laughs> and we we still love you, Northeast. We're just we're we're yes, shady. I mean, we're we're part we of do. Well. I loved I loved my customers, and I loved, but it's hard to get break in, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Because yeah. there's almost like a distrust of strangers there. Yes. So. Uh-huh. And, and for, yeah, like for anybody who's listening, like why I asked that question is just because like all, and we've had, we've had people from all over the world on here. And it's just quirky to hear the, like the little differences in people 
and some of them are really funny and some of them are really true <laughs> like what yeah. and, like the way you said it like we what we normally get like people in like the maryland and northeast are like you guys are really rude and it's like yeah sorry we're like it's it, we're super sarcastic and a lot of it's like tongue-in-cheek like we're not actively like hating on you but i, I don't know we're, we're weird people but it, well, it, it's a I fun question it, I, to ask i personally think it has to do with you know you live in cities there's mm-hmm. a lot of people there's a lot of crowding there's you know mm-hmm. a fight for resources so to speak yeah um and and i think you know people that live there come from kind of harder stock and yeah. there's a lot of you know when you talk about places like new york you know those cities have been built on different populations of people that have come from all over the world mm-hmm. and you got and you got to be tough yeah and mm-hmm. so there's some of that. It's not. I respect that. It's yeah. just hard as a sales rep. It was hard to break into that territory. Oh, I'm, sure. I'm sure. All right, Carly, what do you got? I don't know. You said you had like a bunch of questions. So you want to just keep going? Well, that one went long, so I was going to pass. Oh, okay. It to you. Um, so you said like so you're in recovery. Your mom's in recovery. Your husband's in recovery. Your son's in recovery. Is it difficult at all to like stay in your own lane and not like? put your hands in in their program and it, do you totally see it happening like on the flip side with them and you it, um that's a great question and it used to be it used to be hard for me to stay in my own lane because um i had such a i had a what's called, what i call a fix it problem um you know, this idea that if anyone was upset, if anyone was hurting, if anyone needed help or advice, it was my job to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my job to make everything better. It was my job to make everybody feel good, um, for everything to always be nice. And so, yeah, it was hard to stay in my own lane because, you know, if somebody was upset, I had to get in there and I had to help them mm-hmm. because, you know, that was my job. Um, and it wasn't until I um, started going to Al-Anon when my son really was crashing and burning that I learned that I didn't, that wasn't jo- my job at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to do that at all. I could, you know, stand, figure out their own problems and their own solutions. Yeah. And that I could mind my own business and yes, they might, it might be painful for them. You know, it might be incredibly painful for them like it was with my son. Mm-hmm. When I stopped saying, you know, I don't know, I don't know, honey, but you'll figure it out. And he'd say, but mom, I'm, I'm sleeping outside tonight and it's 30 degrees. And I'd say, I'm sorry, honey, I can get you to a homeless shelter or I can help you get into treatment. Mm-hmm. I love you and I'm really sorry. And he'd say, I don't want to do either of those things. And then I'd have to say, well, I'm sorry, you're, you're going to have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's staying in your own laid hard and it was yeah. very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, I hope she's not listening, but my mother has a horrible time staying in her own lane. Um, she just, I don't know, she just has a really difficult time um, mm-hmm. minding her own business. Mm-hmm. And that's been very challenging for me because um, I'm an adult and I don't need, you know, I don't need a mommy. Yeah. And uh, it's, that's been challenging. So, I've, I've learned over the years how to set boundaries with her and I've had to set very hard boundaries with her, you know, as I've, as I've gotten older and as I've learned more, I've had to really, um, you know, 
be kind of hard about boundaries with my mom. And um, it, that was very difficult because I didn't grow up having any boundaries with my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have them now, and it's made my life a lot more peaceful. Um, I know she doesn't necessarily enjoy it, but um, again, she has to figure that out. It's not my job to fix that for her. Yeah. Um, my husband, he always stays in his own lane. <laughs> you know, he's that career military. Right. His dad was career military. You know, he's like, figure it out. Not my problem. <laughs> um you know, I love you guys, but I'm going to the garage to work on a, a project and I uh, hope you guys live. <laughs> <laughs> That's my husband. That works. Yeah. I mean, he's he's very good at staying out of everyone's business. He's, you know, it's not that he doesn't care. It's just that mm-hmm. he's like, it's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. I love that answer. That's actually one of my favorite answers in life when it genuinely does not like, like, pertain to me at all and just be like yeah well that's not my no not my fucking problem <laughs> you figure, yeah i mean with our kids he's a he's a little softer with our children yeah. um we've got four four kids between us so he's softer with our children but not a lot softer mm-hmm. <laughs> hey that, sometimes that's what's needed all right he, you know i've had to remind him over the years you know like we're not this is not a navy command here this is mm-hmm. at the house we live here you know, I know you're used to being in charge, but we're not um, in boot camp, so if you could tone it down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, so my final question is, all right, if you, you have to pick only one, uh, what is your favorite step and why? Mm. Step three. Um, yes, called it. <laughs> That's mine, too. Well... That's a hard question. It's a yeah, I mean, tough call. Step, step two and three go together in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, turning, you know, your will and your life over, admitting that you need, you know, that only a higher power can fix you. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeking after whatever your higher power's will for you is each day. Um, because one of the hardest things that I struggled with in the beginning was just staying in the day. Yep. And just you know, okay, what is it that you have for me to do today? What is it in front of me to do today? And I think the third step, that's a lot of what the third step is trying to get you to learn, Mm -hmm. you know, is that you depend on your higher power one day at a time and you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And so build my life, mom. And I'd say you rebuild it one one day at a time. Mm-hmm. You do the next right thing, and day, day by day your life will get better. And he'd say, "Yeah, but I can't. I don't know how I'm ever going to get a job with these tattoos." And I'd say, "It'll when it when when that time is right, that time will present itself. You're not there today. Yep. That's not where you're at today. Yep. Today you're right here. You know you're in treatment. You're going to your groups. You're going to your therapy. That's what you're doing today." Mm-hmm. Seek, seek your higher power. He'll he'll help you out. The the rest is unwritten yet. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And uh, I know Eric heard that because he's a he's a step ten guy. And and I had oh a, yeah I had a personal uh, 
tally going between uh, step three and step ten, and so far I'm totally. Worried. Oh really? Yeah. Which one's your favorite? Three. I, I'm. I'm. Oh. I go with step three as well. So he was like, "Okay, no, well we does. have to be we have to be best friends on social media then." Absolutely. Yeah. We'll <laughs> de- definitely like, share, subscribe. Totally. Um, I already have. Oh, I know. And I we we will return the favor. Um, do you have any more questions, Carly? Nope. I'm um, good to go. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest Heather for joining us today. Woo! Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was really my pleasure to talk to you. I hope um, I hope whoever's listening got something out of it. That's whenever I speak on a podcast. That's my that's really my hope. Yeah. Is that somebody listening hears something and and it resonates with them and and it helps them in some way. Totally and. Um, we want to give you one one last quick minute to talk to anybody out there directly listening, uh, struggling, need, needing to hear that little oomph uh, in their recovery. What do you have to say to them? Just that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not impossible to get sober and stay sober. I know. I know when it's you know day one or day thirty, it, it can seem impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, it can seem like you look at somebody that has a year or two years or 10 and you think, how, how does somebody do that? You know, I can't imagine doing that. I couldn't either. Yep. You know, at day one, if you had told me day one, someday you're going to be sitting in your log cabin in the middle of the woods in Indiana and you're going to be doing a podcast and you're going to have 31 years, I would have said, shut up. Yep. You are the biggest liar I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. But it, But you have to follow directions. Mm-hmm. You have to follow directions. That's the biggest thing. And I would tell that to families, too, when I work with families. You have to follow directions. If you have someone who is trying to help you, whether that's a counselor or a group therapist or a sponsor, a friend, a loving family member, someone who's loving, let's preface that, mm-hmm. and they're trying to help you, listen yep. to them. Take what they're saying in and listen and follow directions because they, they're really trying to help you. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do this alone. You know, there's tons of support out there. Whether And I know now it's kind of hard with um, meetings. Sometimes still aren't meeting live. But, you know, you can connect online with people. You can reach out to people on Instagram that have sober accounts. There's thousands and mm-hmm. thousands of them. You know, you can go to intherooms.com and go to meetings. You don't have to be alone in trying to stay sober. Yep. There's there's a lot of help out there if you want it. And um, and that's a big part of it, too. You have to want it. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again. And here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. Uh, like we like we just said, uh, go to our Instagram, our Facebook, our Twitter, uh, our YouTube channel. Uh, like, share, subscribe. Um, we are self-supporting, so please uh, become part of the podcast recovery family and join our Patreon to help us keep the mics on. And Heather, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, where can our listeners find you? My website is www dot full family recovery.com so it's www.fullfamilyrecovery.com awesome 
All right. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, again. But most importantly, stay safe and stay clean.